Welcome to Backlog Books. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I've been reading lately. My name is Kara. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. I'm wondering in the new year if I will change the format of these reviews slightly to make them less about summarizing a book. Because the main feedback I get about these episodes is that people don't want to listen to an episode about a book they haven't read because they don't want it to be spoiled for them, which is totally fair. I don't summarize everything that happens. But if you don't want to know anything going into a book, then I could see how listening to these episodes when you haven't read the book could be not what you want. But I don't know, just something I'm thinking about. Let's dive in. This time we are talking about The Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison. Here is the summary. The youngest half-goblin son of the emperor has lived his entire life in exile, distant from the imperial court and the deadly intrigue that suffuses it. But when his father and three sons in line for the throne are killed in an accident, he has no choice but to take his place as the only surviving rightful heir. Entirely unschooled in the art of court politics, he has no friends, no advisors, and the sure knowledge that whoever assassinated his father and brothers could make an attempt on his life at any moment. Surrounded by sycophants eager to curry favor with the naive new emperor and overwhelmed by the burdens of his new life, he can trust nobody. Amid the swirl of plots to depose him, offers of arranged marriages, and the specter of the unknown conspirators who lurk in the shadows, he must quickly adjust to life as the goblin emperor. All the while he is alone and trying to find even a single friend, and hoping for the possibility of romance, yet also vigilant against the unseen enemies that threaten him, lest he lose his throne or his life. The Goblin Emperor was published in 2014. It was nominated for a Hugo, a Nebula, and a World Fantasy Award, and it won the Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel in 2015. Our author, Sarah Monette, was born in 1974. She earned a master's and a PhD in English literature from the University of Wisconsin. She has been publishing her recent works under the name Catherine Addison. She published another book in the world of the Goblin Emperor, about one of the side characters, called The Witness for the Dead in 2021, and the sequel to that book, Grief of Stones, is expected in 2022. She also wrote a Sherlock Holmes retelling called The Angel of the Crows, which I read at the end of last year, because I was on a Catherine Addison kick. I read The Goblin Emperor and The Witness for the Dead and also The Angel of the Crows. They were all good. I enjoyed them. Now, The Goblin Emperor is kind of a steampunk fantasy book. It's not your usual setting of medieval Europe that you see in a lot of fantasy books. 
And it has a different take on elves and goblins than you may be used to. These are not the goblins and elves of Lord of the Rings. I think the summary on the back of the book is a little confusing because our main character, Maya, becomes the emperor of the elf lands. But the summary makes it sound like he's the emperor of the goblins. Instead, he's the half-goblin emperor of the elves, which adds extra layers to his initial banishment and the difficulties he has in taking over the role of emperor. Addison does a good job of blending magic in with the rest of the world building. This world has people who can cast tracking charms and speak to the dead, and also airships and clockworks and pneumatic tubes. Also, if you're a map person, there isn't a map in the book itself, but there is a map of the Elflands available on the author's website, and I've included a link to it in the show notes. Most of the book does take place in the capital city, but they talk about places all over the country. There's a brief explanation on names and titles and naming conventions in the back of the book, which I would recommend you read before you read the book, because you can go in cold and get used to the names, which is how I read it the first time. But I think it helps to have the context You'll get to know the different titles used and also that surnames in the same family vary. They have the same root word and different suffixes depending on whether you're married, single, a man, or a woman. As a world-building tool, I really like it because it helps build this very fully realized world. It is initially a little difficult to just jump into and understand, though. Addison also differentiates between formal and informal language, which is quite the feat in English, which doesn't have formal and informal phrases already built into the language like Spanish or German do. Because it takes place in a fantasy court, mostly you can assume people are being formal. Addison is very clear about when someone is being informal because it's a big deal if someone is going to be casual with an emperor. Our story begins with Maya, lonely, afraid, and unable to imagine his life will improve. He's been in exile from his father, the emperor's court, almost since he was born. His only friend was his mother, who died when he was eight. Maya has lived the ten years since her death in a small, isolated lodge with only a few servants and a guardian who hates him for company. And it's important to understand where Maya is coming from because it informs Maya's whole character and this whole book. Maya has learned to make himself small and unassuming so as not to catch the attention of his abusive guardian. The skills he has needed to survive in exile are almost entirely useless when he's dropped into the imperial court. And Maya clings desperately to his few memories of his mother and her beliefs. Maya's mother, Chenelo, was the youngest daughter of the great Avar, the goblin king, and sent from the court of the goblins to be 
the Elfland Emperor's fourth wife. To be clear, the emperor doesn't have four simultaneous wives. His wives keep dying. Not in a suspicious way, just in the way that women die when maternity care is not prioritized. Addison has built a system that relies heavily on women as bargaining tools without allowing them any agency. One of Maya's half-sisters, he discovers later, wants to become a scholar, but is resigned to being married off to benefit the emperor. This aspect of the world is built well. I mean, the whole world is really well-formed and well-thought-out. And this treatment of women is one of the things that we see Maya question and hope to change, partly because of his mother's influence. Maya's father married Chenelo reluctantly. Theirs was a purely political marriage brought about because his advisors suggested it, and he had her sent away almost immediately after the wedding. And this is one of the things we find out about Maya's father. The man loved to send people into exile. Maya has seen his father exactly once in his life, at his mother's funeral, and he has never spoken to him or any of his family, not even on his mother's side. In one swoop, Maya's family dies, his father and three older brothers in an airship crash, and Maya must take up the mantle of emperor. He has little clue how the court of his father operates, and no clue at all as to the alliances already playing out there. Maya is scared of saying the wrong thing, revealing his own ignorance, or offending someone on accident. He finds one person he can rely on to give him information about the court, and then he must dive in and hope to hold his own. No one, least of all Maya, believes he can be a good emperor. But as the son of the emperor, it's his right to try. The book, which is nearly 500 pages long, covers a relatively short period of time, from early winter to early spring, as Maya takes his first steps as emperor. He's an unknown quantity at court, Half the people expect him to be just like his father and carry on business as usual. Others expect him to be an idiot or a religious fanatic or totally useless. Everything he does upsets someone. And he doesn't just have to navigate a political landscape he's unprepared for. It's revealed that his father and brother's deaths were not an accident. It complicates Maya's already fragile grip on his court. Someone there is probably the murderer. And the nature of being emperor means that Maya spends most of his time telling other people what to do. He can't investigate for himself. He wouldn't even know where to start. So he must select someone to investigate for him. And every choice he makes has to be balanced by a million factors— Will his investigator tell him the truth? Do they have an agenda of their own? Do they already work for someone else? Maya also wrestles with feeling alone. Can an emperor even have friends like everyone else? The people closest to him are his secretary and his bodyguards. 
not exactly the most appropriate confidants of an emperor. Anyone who tries to get close to him is likely hoping to gain influence or power through the connection. It's a lonely way to live. This book is character, not action-driven. We are focused on Maya's growth as he changes from a scared, neglected child to a person with agency who is, if at the end of the book not entirely secure in his power, at least getting there. Over and over, we see Maya reflect on his own actions and deliberately choose to be kind and merciful. He watches himself to make sure he's not drawn to cruelty just because it's easy and what he's familiar with from his own years of being abused. We see his mother's influence in so much of what Maya chooses to do and who he chooses to be. And I like him so much. He's, I don't know if you're familiar with this term for describing characters, but he's a cinnamon roll. And I like any character who looks at the choices available and chooses to be kind. The book is a slow build to Maya gradually finding his feet in the court, to him knowing who to call on or influence to get things done. Even with a mountain of expectations and the shadow of his late father's wishes, Maya chooses what kind of emperor he will be. He questions traditions. It's too early for him to subvert tradition entirely or to change things, because he's not stable in his position, but he notices when he's told about inequality and unfairness, like when he's told his couriers aren't taught to read or that the women in his family are only good to be married off. It's a slow journey, but one day Maya looks around the court and realizes he is good at being emperor, and moreover, he's dedicated to giving his best to his court and all of his people. He's listening to the overlooked, thanking his servants by name, thinking of more than himself and his court. There are mysteries to uncover, alliances to forge or maintain, horrifying social situations to stutter his way through, and a murderer to be found. My final thoughts on the Goblin Emperor. Like I said earlier, this is not a book of action. It's a character study and an exploration of a political system, basically. If you're not willing to wade through some very long, unusual names, I don't blame you. But I do really, really like this book. If you want more media like this, I have heard The Hands of the Emperor by Victoria Goddard is in a similar vein. But I also suggest The King of Atolia by Megan Whalen Turner, just because I really like it. Join me next time to hear about David Mogo Godhunter by Suyi Davis Okungboa. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast. You can contact me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope this new year is starting off well for you, and we'll talk again soon.